Welcome to Speakeasy Theology with Chris Green. Hello, and welcome to an Ash Wednesday conversation with Father Bill Dandriano of Beacon, New York, and the Reverend Dr. Chris Green of Tulsa. It's good to see you guys again. It's been a while since Advent. Yeah, it is. it has been a while, and it is good to see you. So we are going to jump into these the lectionary passages for Ash Wednesday, but before we do, I wonder if we could just reflect briefly for those perhaps who aren't aren't super familiar with this season, this church season of Lent, just on what it is, what it's about, why we do it. Bill, I'll let you start. I mean, what? How have you handled that? In your circles. Yeah, Lent's been a shock to our system, probably starting in about 2012, 2013. We started dabbling into it. And then, you know, 2016, 2017, really getting involved. And I think for us, Lent has been healthy. It's like when you when you go to the gym for the first time in a long time, everything hurts. Yeah, yeah. Right? And so it's like we, we've been working that that out. It's like what, what does it mean to repent? What does it mean to consecrate yourself? What does it mean to fast? Like just, you know, it, it's kicked up a lot of pre um, misunderstandings of Lent over the years. And so it's sort of just been an exploration into – what is it historically? And then what does it mean for us in our context in Beacon, New York, as a non-denominational church? How do we how do we celebrate that um, has been a communal effort? Yeah. Yeah, I had a couple of realizations the, over the last few weeks that we're up against a, a kind of widespread sense of powerlessness. And for a lot of people, specifically, I, I should maybe this will provide some context. So I was actually leading a discussion on James Cone's Cross and the Lynching Tree and referring to this interview that, that Cone had done in which he had talked about, they had asked him, like, why is it so difficult to get this conversation on racism to be taken seriously by, by so many people who aren't directly affected by it or don't know that they're directly affected by it? And Conan said something to the effect of, you know, I think it's a really painful thing to come aware of your own guilt. And, and I think that's certainly true. I mean, there there is a way in which we shy away from it. But right when I was reading that, I, I, I had this thought, I think there's an even deeper fear. And that is not so much that I'm guilty, but that I'm guilty in a way I can't do anything about that I'm facing a wrong that just cannot be righted and that I'm in some way answerable for, if not responsible for, but there's nothing I can do. And that powerlessness is what's the most overwhelming of all. I mean, we, we have been so overwhelmed that we are left powerless. And and that kind of simmering in me or, or smoking in me, I I hear this conversation about Lent as 
I think a lot of people shy away from these kinds of traditions that they that feel vaguely Catholic, right? Or perhaps not so vaguely, feel explicitly Catholic. I, I think even though, of course, they're not Roman Catholic. It's not some in some way, you know, the 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 property of the Roman Church, but the, these practices like like Lent, like the liturgy, like the sacraments, like holy orders, that these practices, these ways of life, they trigger that fear, that feeling of powerlessness because they're they're unfamiliar. They're unfamiliar in a way that makes us feel awkward, and we feel it as, and I, again, I'm talking in broad strokes here, but I think a lot of people feel it as a challenge to the worthwhileness of what they've done. Like if I were to take something up like Lent, isn't that saying that all these past years of my life, I somehow wasn't doing it right. And that to do this is to say all of that wasn't really God. All of that wasn't really faithfulness on my part. Maybe I'm overstating the case, but I think a lot of people are resistant to Lent in particular, but broadly speaking, liturgy, sacramental tradition for those reasons. Right. Not not so much theological, although they may frame it in that way, or some appeal to what the Bible says or et cetera, et cetera. I but I think it's rooted in just a, a very almost primitive sense of powerlessness and awkwardness. What are your thoughts about that? Does that does that ring true for you? Yeah, I mean it 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 does. I mean that that's so it, you know, in our church, as we've kind of engaged some of these practices, including observing Lent and kind of following the sacred year, right? The church calendar. Um, there has been a sense of that of I, I've noticed, you know, with some people, a real sort of a frustration that I don't, <clears throat> I don't get this. And like you said, kind of what does it mean for what I have been doing? Yeah. Yeah. How I have been living uh, and, and especially, you know, worshiping. Um, so that, that does seem to be, that does seem to be right. And I, and I think, um, well, yeah, I'll, I'll hold off for now. Go, go ahead, Bill. A couple years back, I had a very long conversation with somebody like the joke is if you, you know, meet with somebody for an hour, it's lunch. If you meet for two hours, you had a conference. And if you meet for three hours or more, you had a summit. And this was somehow longer than a summit. It was like one of those things where we went there for breakfast and decided like, we might as well just have lunch here too. And the conversation centered, it was two parts. Part one was this gentleman telling me these areas in his life where he needs help. He needs a lot of work. Uh, His marriage is suffering. His parenting is suffering. And then the second half, which was, we thought was going to be the end. It was like a vent about, this Lenten season, I was going to say event about Lent, but that would have rhymed and I don't want to do that. Event. Yeah. And uh, the whole gist of it was he was saying, why do you, why do we have to have a season where we focus on darkness? Mm. Why do we have to have these gloomy seasons? And after like a couple of hours of just going back and forth, it dawned on me that in his mind, when he got saved, he was he was hitting verses here. When he got saved, he was taken out of the darkness yep. and put into the light. 
And so it took two hours of exploratory questions for me to realize his misunderstanding was Lent is treating us like we're not saved. Mm. Mm. But the first half of the conversation was him saying, here's like three areas in my life. If I don't, if I don't get this right now, I'm in trouble. Yeah. And it's like that, that moment helped me in, in the moment say, Hey, like you need to think of Lent as sanctification. Yeah. As now, now that you're brought in, now that Christ has you, and his light is shining on you. Here are the things we're working out. But that also gave me an insight corporately into how to discuss Lent and as a season yeah. of light, not just darkness, but a season of light shining into the darkness yeah. and what happens when the lights come on. Man, that's that's such a great story, Bill, because it does point to, I think, a number of things that make these kinds of conversations difficult for so many people in that it, we've all been conditioned as people of first thoughts. We've been conditioned as of people by we've been conditioned to, to understand something only by seeing the truth as the middle ground between two extremes. And, and so everything new, everything unfamiliar, and especially those things that are, not so much familiar as caricatured for us as problematic. Yeah. It is so hard to take those things seriously because we have to, we don't have the wherewithal to hold a lot of things together at once. We don't have, we've not been taught to be careful and to make fine distinctions. So like what, what this story shows is that, you know, Lent to him. And I think to a lot of people, it, it feels Catholic. It feels formal. It feels religious in the worst sense. But what I couldn't have anticipated that I think is so illuminating is that it felt to him like you're saying I've essentially not been saved, that I'm still in the darkness. And man, that that explains a lot. Right. I mean, it tells you a lot about what the the core resistance actually is. Right. That there's a there's a deep, deep seated fear that's deeper than the prejudices and the recoil against abuses. There's a there's a fundamental panic about is God with me? Am I with God? Am I on the right road? Am I okay? Am I going to be okay? And all of this triggers that that kind of primal fear. And the irony is I feel like those four hours were a microcosm of the 40 days of Lent. Mm -hmm. It started with this deep defensiveness and it ended with a very clarifying confession. Mm. And it was almost like in that one little conversation, Lent worked. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's great. So for those who, do, who don't know, and I assume most people who are listening to this conversation have some sense of it. I mean, Lent is a 40-day fast, essentially, right? And it's, it's patterned on Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness. And it covers the time from Epiphany to Easter, excluding Sundays, which are feast days. And it's a season of repentance. It's a season of penitence. It's a season of, of silence and self-reflection. I mean, one, one of the major themes of Lent is it's a time to pay attention to what's happening in you rather than inspecting what is happening in the lives of others around you. So I, I think if there are people who are standing kind of just on the outside of the practice of Lent and observing it, 
man, I, I want to just encourage you. Like, there's no reason for you not to trust that process, to trust the season. And it will help if you can hear that a lot of things can be true at once and without one truth crowding out the other, right? It, when we talk about the darkness of Lent, we are talking about the darkness of the cloud of glory. We're not talking about the darkness of sin. When we talk about repentance in Lent, we don't mean becoming a Christian. We mean becoming more like Christ, right? Sanctification, Bill, in, in your language. And I, I've, I've come to trust more and more that over the church's history and over the history of Israel, God has worked with God's people in such a way that there is an inheritance of wisdom, what, what we call a tradition. And, and it's not to say that Israel and the church has gotten everything right, not by any means. I mean, Scripture is very clear about that. But there is a kind of accumulated wisdom that we stand to gain by, right? Like we, we don't want to be without that. And Lent is, to me, is one of the gifts of that, of that wisdom. It's something our mothers and fathers learned to be helpful. This is one of the ways in which our minds and hearts can be guided toward the transformation, God, the transfiguration that God desires for us. Brewer, you want to weigh in on that before we go to the texts? Um, I, I guess just one thing that, that I would like to add is that I'm constantly being reminded of these days is one of the things I appreciate so much about Lent is that not having grown up in a, in a church or in a church community that observed Lent or, or really knew much or said anything much about it. I mean, I didn't even really know it existed until I think I moved, I moved to Maine as a teenager and I had a lot of Catholic friends and I remember them talking about it me not having a sense, a clue about what it was. And, um, but, uh, is that, you know, for the kinds of the sorts of fasting that I was used to was fasting that had really heavy expectation Mm. of something at the end of it, right? There was yep. some kind of breakthrough, some kind of, yep. you know, deliverance, some kind of next level, <laughs> something or other, yep. Yep. you know, promotion. And I think Lent reminds us, it can remind us of a few things. One of the things is that, you know, the work of God in our, in our lives is so often a slow work. And that, and I love that we observe Lent every year. Right, like it's not like a sort of like one and done. We've done this thing and now we've broken through. It's no, no. Every single year we're coming yeah. back to this, and, and and to recognize that's the pattern of scripture. Like yes, Israel's feasts recurred. That's the pattern of nature. I mean, summer and fall and winter and spring recur and reoccur. These these patterns in our, our lives are helpful, right? And they're 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 stitched into the way that God's wisdom teaches us to be wise. And at some level we know this, our bodies know it, our hearts know it, but our minds don't always grasp it. And by ours here, I'm talking about free church, independent, evangelical, Pentecostal, charismatic, and people adjacent to those worlds. Like we, we know this because we live it. Like we all have liturgies. Every single church is liturgical. It's just a question of how aware of you, how aware of it are you? How intentional are you, are you about it? And 
how reliable is the liturgy that you're using? How true is it? But you are absolutely liturgical, right? Because to be human is to be to be patterned. Right? You cannot help but live in these cycles, right? And I don't think you have to be caught in a loop, but life is lived right. cyclically. And that's true, again, of scripture. That's true of nature. That's true of our spirituality as well. And... I, I think it it will help us to to come aware, and hopefully, some a conversation like this can just kind of draw attention to what's already happening. The spirit is already working in these ways, but we don't always connect the dots, so to speak. Like we don't always make that make that clear. Bill, last word on that, and then we're going to read the text. Richard Rohr, I think I think it was Richard Rohr. He talks about the liturgical year as having being filled with new beginnings. Mm. Advent is a beginning, even early epiphany uh, is a pre-beginning to ordinary time. Yeah, Obviously, Ash Wednesday is a beginning of Lent, and then Pentecost Sunday is the beginning of ordinary time. And uh, he even mentions that halfway through ordinary time with the Feast of Transfiguration, you almost have like a jump start to the second half of ordinary time. All that to say, he talks about Ash Wednesday as being the most unique because the ashes are the end of last year's Palm Sunday, mm-hmm. which is, if, and for people who don't know, the ashes you use on Ash Wednesday are the burnt palms from the previous Palm Sunday. And he said, and I just thought this line was so good. He said, the new beginnings throughout the liturgical year not only teach us and reteach us how to start well, but they also teach us how to let things end well. Mm-hmm. And he said, in our culture, we have a hard time letting things end. Yeah. And do. he said the transition from Palm Sunday to the burnt palms to one year later, using those palms that are now ended to start a new season, is Christian discipleship in learning how to let something end so that things can begin again. Yeah. And and that actually, we are going to go to the text, but we have to talk about that for just a moment. <laughs> because one of the reasons we struggle with letting things end is that we're cut off from the kinds of practices and patterns that help us end things well. Say for example, yep. there's there's no place, I'm about to make a radical overstatement, but I, I'm doing it unapologetically. There's no time and no place where the gospel is more distorted than funerals. Like we, we are never less faithful than what we say about the dead and to the grieving. And by we, I mean the people that have the struggle with Lent and struggle with the sacramental and the liturgical, like we do not know how to tell the truth of the dead, the dying and the grieving. And some of that is because we don't have the liturgical guidance we don't have the practices, the patterns of life built in to make sure that that death is honored rightly, right? That, that this person who has died is honored rightly, that those who are grieving are honored rightly. And some of that, I mean, I'm going to make a really obvious observation here. Some of that is we've grown up in a, in a highly, a virtually technocratic culture in which we invent machines and devices work until they don't work. And then we throw them away. Mm. We engage in practices of eating in which someone else prepares the food. 
we we have no sense of the backstory of the food that's on our plates. We eat until we're done, until we're full, and then we leave that for someone else to clean up. And in every dimension of our lives, we we have no liturgy. Well, maybe I'm over. I don't. I'm, yeah, I'm just going to press the point. We 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 do not know how to end anything well. Not a meal, not a life, not a ministry. We, we don't know how to end. And it's because we've lost touch with the wisdom, the, the liturgical wisdom that embodies the spiritual experiences of our mothers and fathers who did know they lived in a world in which you couldn't not face an end. Again, all of us, virtually everyone listening to this will have grown up in a world in which we don't see people die. They die out of our sight. The people we love die in the care of people we do not know and they do not know. And that's just not been true historically. Historically, human beings are with their loved ones when their loved ones are dying. And that, without that practice, without that shaping you, without the experience of holding someone's hand when they're breathing their last, seeing that change come over their face, hearing that change come into their voice or the, the posture of their body shifting, like without that experience, like there's a wisdom you'll never learn. And without having the awareness of what it is to be the person coming along to clean up the mess that others have let have left, there are things, there's a wisdom you'll never learn. And many of us are too affluent too our lives are too technical and too busy to learn the wisdom of ending things well. And that dehumanizes us. And what, to me, what Lent offers us, the liturgical tradition offers us, if we can hear it rightly, hear it in the spirit, is it teaches us again, no, everything, everything that exists, every created thing is coming to an end and it needs to end well. There is a way for your life and my life or our ministries or this conversation or a meal we share, like all of that can end well if we know how to attend to it, how to, how to let the end come gracefully. And that, I, I mean, I think that puts its finger, maybe I'm pushing a little too hard, but hopefully you know, to, to make the point. Listen, I mean, just we're here. And I think uh, this is like one of those moments that is very helpful that we didn't plan. Like we're still in our introduction. <laughs> right. But as I was just looking through some stuff for tomorrow night's Ash Wednesday service, um, I was brought to, through layers of looking at stuff, the burial, the, what, what you pray at the graveside from the Episcopal Book of Common Prayer, right to. And this, to me, just affirms everything you said. Listen to this final prayer that they pray. I, they actually managed to combine Ash Wednesday and Easter within 10 words. It's, it's remarkable. Talking about a liturgy of teaching us how to let things end well. The prayer says, you're at the graveside, and the prayer says, you only are immortal, the creator and maker of mankind, and we are mortal, formed of the earth, and to earth we shall return. And then listen to this line. For so did you ordain this when you created me, saying... You are dust, and to dust you shall return. So that one line hit me this morning when I read it, 
ashes to ashes, dust to dust is not cause and effect. It's a promise. Mm. Mm. And then this last line could be one of the most touching lines in the Book of Common Prayer for me personally. All of us go down to the dust. Yet even at the grave, we make our song. Alleluia, alleluia, alleluia. And so whenever you see three alleluias, that's an Easter celebration. But they say within right all of us go down to the dust, Ash Wednesday. Yet even at the grave, 40 days of Lent, we make our song Easter Sunday. Alleluia, alleluia, alleluia. And that's just, to me, that is the formation of people who were formed on how to let something end well. They almost are laying it to rest in a new beginning. Yeah, that's exactly right. So this this year at Sanctuary, the church where you know Julie and I attend and serve, we somehow in the move from where we were last year to this to this new building, we lost the palms. We had so we're like, we're we gonna get ashes. So, but one of the one of the rituals we're we're going to do is is something called burying the hallelujah. And Father Paul talked about this on on Sunday hmm. that. We have kids paint these banners. In fact, I think they're doing it tonight. Hallelujah all over this banner. And then the banner is buried in the ground. And here's what it signifies. So liturgically, in the season of Lent, there's a line, there's a place in the the communion liturgy where the, the church responds by saying, Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. Alleluia. Which is the word, as you said, Bill, of Easter. And during Lent, you don't say the Alleluia. Right. Bury it. You bury it for 40 days. And then it bursts forth, right, at Easter. Alleluia, Alleluia, Alleluia. And what's happening in in that burial ritual is a sense in which we're saying this person's Alleluia is being buried. Ooh but it's going to speak again. Like that voice, the voice of this person we love and have now, we have now lost. They're not lost to God, but they're lost to us for now. That person's hallelujah will be heard again. Right. And we're, we're sowing the seed that will spring to uh, not only their hallelujah, but to the, the fullest hallelujah that they could ever offer. Right. So again, mm. We have to make a distinction. I mean, we've been having lots of conversations recently, all of us have, about revival, thanks to what's happening at Asbury, what's happening at Lee, and, and of course, what's happening online in response to what's happening at those places. And I, I was having a conversation just today with, with some family about the, cons- you know, the revival and the concern about formality. And... I think we have to make a distinction between revival and revivalism. Revival is grace. Revivalism is disease. And in the same way, I think we have to make a, dif- a distinction between tradition and traditionalism. You know, Pelican has that wonderful line. Tradition is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. And mm-hmm. something like that same pattern holds for revival and revivalism for formality and formalism. Right. So just, just think of it like this. You can die in a drought in which there is no water and you can die in a flood in which there's water that cannot be contained because there's no form to hold it. And what we need 
of course, is water to live. But we need forms that can hold that wells and the you know buckets, lakes and rivers and oceans and ponds and creeks. Like we, we need forms that will hold the water in ways that are life-giving for us. Does that make sense? And yeah. when we, our tradition has become so anti-formal, so afraid of formalism that it's destroyed the forms it needs to be able to hold the gift of rain when it comes. Yeah, St. Uh, Teresa has this wonderful image of the ways in which the grace comes in our life. Sometimes it's a gentle rain, but sometimes we have to dig a well to get in touch with the water that's there. Right. So we, we've, many of us have built traditions in which we end up either flooded or famined because not because there's no water, but because we will not preserve the forms that make that water shareable and keepable. And I, I think the, I didn't expect this conversation to turn into this, but we desperately need forms, not formalism, but forms that enable us to hold the water. You know, let that in the language of Jeremiah, we need cisterns that are not broken, right? That, that do not leak. And a lot of us, a lot of revivalist traditions, we've just broken every form. And then we're left with, we're utterly dependent on spontaneous rains or we're going to all die of thirst, right? Because we don't have any way of holding, right? And and this is related to, we flattened everything else out, right? And if the earth is flattened out, there are no bodies of water. There are no low places to hold the water, right? And, and I could go on forever, but I, I think... Maybe I have already gone on forever, but I, man, I, I care so deeply about this. I mean, I, to me, this, this is the gift of tradition and out of mercy, we need to recover it so badly, precisely because we care about the reign of the spirit, precisely because we care about the, the, the well that springs up. When you submit to those forms, it doesn't remove the sentimental feelings that you feel like you'll lose by those forms. And, you know, I, I will, every Ash Wednesday, I have this one moment where when COVID hit in 2020, we missed a few services early in March. And I went to the church on Palm Sunday to film our first service that will be filmed and sent out. We didn't have live stream yet. We were going to film it and then send it out for that following Sunday. Hmm. And when I got to the church, like, so this is like the third or fourth week. We're not there. It's a complete shock to the system. Heartbreaking. Everybody listening remembers where you were, how you felt when this was happening. And I get to the church on a Friday and all the palms were delivered. So there's like this huge bushel of palms and we brought them into the church and it was heartbreaking. It was absolutely heartbreaking because it's like, man, like we're not going to be able to give these to the kids. You know, I'm not going to be able to, you know, we're we're not going to have this tradition that we're so used to having. And it was just kind of like them sitting there was like the sign of like all the terrible things that were happening at the moment. But now, and so we burnt all of them, (laughs) right? Like nobody took any home. Like we burnt all of them. And so like 
since then, the ashes that I use on Ash Wednesday are from the palms that we didn't get to wave mm. in 2020. Well, and if it wasn't for that formalism, like if it wasn't for those forms, we would have just tossed the palms. That's right. Yeah, that's right. But now like that, that ritual is able to hold like this moment of like, as a pastor walking up to your church, being upset that people aren't going to be there, seeing the palms and you're like, this is devastating. Mm -hmm. But now to be able to use those every year for a very long time, because again, we burn all of them. That's a lot of ash, yeah. right? Like it's just this, it's like the, the, the liturgy is holding the heartbreak of that time and slowly making beauty out of it. That's right. And like holding is the right word. Like it, it, the purpose of liturgy is, is that holding, right? The water is what's life. giving. you know, that old, half the glass is half full half empty that's that's that you're you're not seeing the glass yet the point is that the glass is there whether it's half full or half empty that it, it can it can hold all of that it can be full it can be empty but it's there doing its work right and of course there are ways in which the liturgy can be lifeless the people who are doing the liturgy can do it lifelessly actually is what i should say that yeah. there are ways in which we could engage in Lent or Christmas or Pentecost. We could, you know, wear our collars or as Emery calls it, my leash. We can, you know, say formal prayers, including the Lord's prayer. We can do all of that in ways that are lifeless. Absolutely. The point is that though without those forms, we will not be able to hold the life that is shared with us. And then we can't share it. And it, this, this point about throwing away, I mean, so, you know, as, as a priest who presides at communion, you guys, both, both of you are priests as well. You know, this, that, I mean, when we are done with celebrating the Eucharist, when we've shared the gifts of God with the people of God, and we've kept the, the sacrament that we're going to share with those who couldn't be present, we consume the rest or we dispose of it in this, this very sacred way, right? We don't just throw it in the trash. And the, it's not because there's some kind of magical element there that has to be to be handled um, religiously in the negative sense. It's precisely to train us that nothing should be thrown away mindlessly. That's right. Like all Christ is doing in that way is to say let this end well, and then learn how to let everything else end well. I, just just this week, I had this moment. Which, I don't know where this came from or why it came to me, but I was somehow, I connected, my mind connected. I won't blame the spirit for it. The, the nine lepers who do not come back, you know, so Jesus heals these 10 lepers. Only one comes back, right? Those nine, where are the nine, Jesus says, and the 12 baskets of bread and fish that were left over. And it hit me. What happened to those? What happened to the, all that, that those fragments who took them? What did they do with them? And how much of God's work in our lives, there's, there's excess to what God is doing, but either we don't have the baskets to hold it, or we don't have the institutional wherewithal to make sure that the hungry are fed with it. 
And it's so, I mean, it, it hit me really in the gut to think these disciples, not only did they misunderstand what Jesus meant about the leaven of the Pharisees, they just apparently didn't care about what happened with this that Jesus had done, the leftovers, so to speak. At least we don't know. We don't know what they did. And I I, I think that in itself has a lot to say to us. Like we, we are a throwaway culture. We are, once we get to the end of something and we're done with it, it doesn't matter anymore. Whether we're talking about the bread and wine of the Eucharist or we're talking about the food that someone prepared for us at lunch or we're talking about a conversation or we're talking about entertain it doesn't matter like we are a when i'm done with it it's done it's done what it's supposed to do it doesn't matter then and then it's no surprise that we don't know how to honor the dying the dead and the grieving and and so i think jesus is giving us a chance to learn that by saying you know handle handle my body well bury the hallelujah so it can be resurrected we we've got to we've got to shift to the text but one last word on this and then we'll take a quick break and come back and, and read the gospel. I was just thinking <clears throat> when you were saying that about the 12 baskets, uh, last year we had a baptism service and I, I had wanted, you know, for the people being baptized, I had wanted a good number of people to come to the baptism service. And it was not nearly as attended as I was hoping. And we had communion. And after, you know, everybody left when I was finishing the bread that was left, I, uh, something clicked in my head that hadn't clicked to me before. And again, I think it's because of what you're saying, Chris, I think the, the form and the liturgy was like storing a moment for me to realize. And the, the person I was with was like, are you crying? And I'm like, it just hit me. I'm sitting here looking at all this bread that we had prepared that was left over. And it was, it was reminding me in that moment of the people who I wanted to have been there. And weren't there. And it hit me for the first time that all I ever heard growing up was that those 12 baskets represented the like abundance that God wanted to bring in my life. But I actually think you can read it like those 12 baskets represented lack in the sense that Jesus wanted to feed more than 5,000 people and they weren't there. That's right. That's, that's yeah. got to be it. But like he, doesn't, he doesn't do anything. Or, Jesus is not wasteful, right? Right. There's an excess to what he does but never for the sake of waste. That's right. And the the liturgy held that moment for me when I was frustrated, carnally frustrated, right? Yeah. yeah. And then it just it dawned on me that that sacred moment when the priest finishes the bread, you're 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 taking you're symbolically bringing to Christ those who maybe could have been there and didn't want to be or couldn't be. Yeah. And again, it just, it holds that it has a very sacred reality to it when you allow, I just to encourage any, you know, Pentecostals out there, don't think that the liturgy is going to ruin anything. It holds moments of epiphany and revelation for you in ways that you couldn't possibly do. For it, it makes it, it makes it shareable. Yeah. It makes it shareable. Like th- those forms make it so that when it rains, the rain does not simply get taken up by the moment, the ground in that moment, it's, it's stored to be shared. And like that, yeah, man, so much more that we could say. Brewer, why don't you read the gospel text? All right. Our gospel comes from Matthew 6. 
Jesus said, Beware of practicing your piety before others in order to be seen by them. For then you have no reward from your Father in heaven. So whenever you give alms, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be praised by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward. But when you give alms, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your alms may be done in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And whenever you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, so that they may be seen by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward. But whenever you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And whenever you fast, do not look dismal like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces so as to show others that they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that your fasting may be seen not by others, but by your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust consume and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust consumes and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The Gospel of our Lord. Praise be to you, Lord Christ. So initial uh initial thoughts on that bill you and i were talking a little bit earlier today about this text and Mm -hmm. uh can you can you say what you were say again what you mentioned about the sermon on the mount being christological and what dietrich bonhoeffer said about it It was really really good yeah i mean so Bonhoeffer is just, you know, convinced that when we, the Sermon on the Mount is not some kind of abstraction. It's not some sort of set of principles or something like that. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus giving us Christ's self, himself. And um, so I, I think, are you talking about the light on the hill? Um, yeah, you were. That's what you were talking about. You were yeah, talking yeah. about like I, I had mentioned. It's amazing that Jesus just says, "Beware of practicing your righteousness before the scribes and Pharisees." And for the first time in my life, sadly, it just dawned on me that he's not giving us a way to get righteousness. He's just flippantly declaring that we have it, and he's the right. Sermon on the Mount is teaching us how to have it, not how to get it. And then you right. made that comment about city on the hill, and I like almost yeah, it's it's his life, right? Yeah, you're you're a city on the hill. You're the light of the world, right? And it's <laughs> I can't remember if it was Bonhoeffer who says this, or it may have been Bonhoeffer read uh, St- Stanley Howard reading Bonhoeffer. That might have been it for this. That he articulates it like this: that he's like, yeah, um, so it's not you've got to work to become this light of the world, or here's the steps to become the light of the world. It's the fact that the incarnate word of God is speaking this creative word. And thus it is because of who says it 
it is. So he makes it and makes it possible. You are the light of the world by virtue of the fact that Jesus has named as such. So Chris, can you maybe connect your, your thoughts on this here? So before when we opened, you mentioned how some may feel insecure or anxious about the powerlessness that they feel during Lent. Like there's just nothing I can do about my sin. And every year you keep shoving my face in it. Right. And then with what Chris Brewer just said, that Stanley Harawas and Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, um, the idea that we're also powerless where our righteousness is given to us. Mm -hmm. So there's like two kinds of feeling powerless here and like a loss of control, like the sense of, Every year, I just can't. I'm ashes to ashes. I just can't do anything about it. I can't avoid ashes, apparently. And then on the other hand, you are a city set on a hill. Like it, there's no there's no map to get there. You are that because I said it. I said let there be, and there you are, a city set on a hill. Mm-hmm. Why do both of those make us feel powerless in in ways, or make us like? Why do we fight against that? Oh, I mean, I I think there one we have to remember. Evil is working against us getting it, right? So there there are cross pressures, right? Ways in which we're being resisted as we try to come to that truth. Some of that is we've we've been sinned against so deeply, it's hard for us to hold it. It's hard for us to to believe that these things are so. I I think one of the reasons we struggle so much with sin is that we we overestimate how much it matters to God and we don't recognize the ways in which all God cares about is the harm that's being done to us and our neighbors and, and the world that's entrusted to our care. And we, we, we then aren't outfitted for the kind of discernment that's required that the, we're afraid, we're afraid. And, when you're afraid, you can't hear anything else except because everything sounds like a threat. When you're afraid, every voice sounds like the voice of an enemy. And, or at least you're susceptible to not, not knowing how to separate the voice of the shepherd from the voice of the hireling or the voice of a friend from the voice of an enemy. And, and so we, we have to have the fear dispelled. And dispel is exactly the thing. The spell has to be broken. Mm, yeah. Fear weaves a spell over us and it has to be broken. And I think the word of the word that breaks it is the word of Jesus. The Jesus who touches us as he touched Peter and James and John on the Mount of Transfiguration after they'd fallen on their faces. You know, he puts his hand on them and says, stand up, do not be afraid. Like that dispelling word has to come to all of us. And when it does, then we will be able to hear what's true about us, that, that we are, in fact, a city on a hill. And, uh, of course, that's, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's not something that can be willed in. You, you can't decide for yourself that you want that. In that, in that way, we are powerless. <laughs> like, we didn't bring ourselves into being, and we cannot bring ourselves into full flourishing. But the God with whom we have to do does not want to leave us powerless. He wants to empower us and empower us with his own power. I mean, we talk so much about being filled with the spirit. I mean, what we're being 
told when we're told that the spirit is in us or the spirit is on us is that God's power is at work in us, right? The power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in you in the language of scripture. And, and so we, we are never powerless in, in the, in the ultimate sense, because we're sustained even at our limits by, by the power of God. But we can't hear any of that as good news or have any sense of how to live into it. So long as we're afraid, afraid of ourselves, afraid of the world, afraid of God, afraid of death. I don't know if I'm answering your question. The the silence suggests I'm not. No, I was just thinking about, uh, again, Brewer and I were talking on the phone earlier And, you know, in in the text, it says, you know, don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. Mm -hmm. And just for like some lunchtime fun, I looked up, you know, what causes moths to like come into my closet and eat at my clothing. Mm -hmm. And one of one of the articles I read said one of the number one reasons why a moth would be attracted to clothing in a closet is because of the perspiration on the clothing. Mm -hmm. And I thought about that and I thought about, you know, God telling Adam, you know, by the sweat of your face, you're going to be working the ground now. And mm-hmm. just like you were saying before, the, the, the sense that we need to manage our life as opposed to live it. You said this in a sermon a few weeks ago, I think at sanctuary. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, the, the extra work we do to manage our life. And it causes that perspiration. It causes that it's not a Sabbath work. Mm -hmm. It's one that causes unnecessary sweat. And in that moment, it's almost like the moth and the rust are kind of a grace in that they'll eat away at those things that I have my trust in until they're gone. Yeah. Well, yeah. It's the Jonah. It's the, it's the worm in the Jonah story. Yes that devours the gourd we're hiding under. Yeah, I think that's right. And and in the text itself, this is really important detail. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Mm. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Now there, there's a way of mishearing that, which would be, you know, God doesn't care about what happens in the world. He only cares about what happens in heaven or, or in the heavenly so that you can get a kind of spirituality that's all verticality. It's all about my relationship with God directly. And what happens around me just doesn't matter. I have no responsibility for my neighbor's well-being. Yeah, you know, the, the most obvious example of this is the gospel has nothing to do with social justice. It's all vertical, right? But the point Jesus is making there is the way in which you store up treasures for yourself in heaven is by sharing your good things with people who are around you. So good. Right. You don't store up for yourself things on earth because the things you're being given now are for the people who are around you. The reason there are 12 baskets full left over after I've fed all of you is that you can't receive the life that this bread actually embodies that, that sacramental moment in which Jesus turns those fish and those loaves into his body for them. They can't be his body until they're giving that to others who aren't yet present. And we, we have to recognize that's, that's how you store up heavenly reward, heavenly resources 
is by what you give away to those who are in need need around you and that that's a position of of strength that's a position in which you've been empowered to be for others what they need and i i i don't think we can overstate that's what lent is about it's about calling us into that place of empowered responsibility as trusted sons and daughters of God, partners of God in the work of caring for our neighbors. God loves. Let's talk a bit about the, the other texts. Of course you've got, well, let's go to second Corinthians next. Uh, we don't have to read the whole text, but your, your thoughts about second Corinthians five, 10 to or yeah, five twenty to six ten. It's to the reason I want to transition is I think it's, it's directly related to this point I was just making about partnering with God. We are, Paul says outright, we are workers together with him. So what, what do you make of the, of this text? I was looking at the, the lists of stuff that he goes through in, yeah. in this partnership of the gospel. Right. And there's a similar list in Hebrews where it lists yeah. in, in, the, in the heroes of faith, it lists all these wonderful things that happened and then some terrible things that happened. Right. Yeah. Like people received back their dead, which is amazing. And then they were sawn in two, which is not, that's not your good day. Right. And in this. Especially when you realize that some of the people who were raised to life are the ones who were later sawn asunder. Right. Like talk about your classic high-low situation. (laughs) We shouldn't be joking about this, my God. We should definitely edit this out, except I don't have the wherewithal, the, the expertise for that kind of editing. So everyone who's listening, you're going to need to be selective hearers right at this point. All right, make having, your point. Having Seriously. me on a podcast where you don't know how to edit something out is on you. That is <laughs> on you. That is on me. You're exactly you right. You're exactly right. Okay, go. The, Put those lists. The list. yeah. Afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, knowledge, patience, kindness, Holy Spirit, genuine love. One of the things that I believe Ash Wednesday does by, by reforming the ash into a cross. It's sort of, mm-hmm. it's sort of, it removes the competitiveness between those dichotomies. So like until the Ash Wednesday moment, when the ash goes from like a heap of ruins to an offering pleasing yeah. to God, right. When it's formed into a cross, you think if I behave well, I'll get the spirit, the genuine love, the truthful speech, the patience, the kindness. And if I am not living my life well, it'll be the calamities, the afflictions, the hardships, the beatings. Yeah. And I love how he just sort of like interchangeably says these things as the, the gospel comes into our life and it makes itself known equally. Mm. In all of those. So if so, if we talk about partnership and somebody feels overly empowered because life is going well and somebody else feels removed because life isn't, this raise, lowers the one and raises the other one up. It, it lowers the mountain and raises the valley, so to speak. Yeah. And it says that you're, no one is disqualified. Like what you're going through is just you're positioned in one angle of how the gospel makes itself known and how you participate with Christ in it. There isn't disqualification here. And so I just thought that was like, that's something I want to share very simply tomorrow night at church is just your, your partnership is included here because of everything he says. They're not in competition with each other. 
No, and th- no, they're not only not in competition, they're they're cohabiting. They're 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 yeah. married. They're wedded to each other. Yeah, and th- they're wedded to each other. I think in multiple ways. There can be aspects of my life in which I'm in f- I'm fasting, and other aspects of my life in which I'm feasting. But even more mysteriously, the fast itself is a feast, and the feast itself is a fast. And <laughs> we have to learn to attend to life in the, in that way. There's a Philip Yancey had an article that I saw today. I don't know if it came out today or not, but I saw it today about his diagnosis with Parkinson's and talking about what it's like for him learning to be diseased in this way. And everyone should, should read it, look it up. Christianity today, his, I don't remember the title of the piece, but it's easy enough to find. And, what struck me about it, he said, people who who suffer in prolonged ways, and this is not an exact quote, but it's close. He said, those who, who suffer in prolonged ways tend to be better stewards of their lives than those who seem to have it easy. Hmm. I don't actually think anyone has it easy. I think every life is hard. But some people are not able to see what's hard about their lives. And one of the good things about particular kinds of suffering is that they're hard to ignore. Mm. Suffering in our body is harder to ignore than suffering in our souls. And I, I think it's important to recognize that some of this that's happening in the text, right, is is already there in all of us. We've just not recognized it yet. And, and yet another mystery is some of this is there because of what others are doing to us unjustly. Mm-hmm. And yet God is working in it, not because he needs that bad thing to make some good thing possible, but because God is not going to let anyone do anything to us that God does not turn to their good and to ours. Right. I, I was just talking today with a, with a dear friend about so we, we had both kind of been missed mistreated by the same person years ago. And I I said to him, you know, I'm not thankful that that person did that to us, but I am grateful of what God has made of what that experience did to me. I'm not thankful for what that person did. I wish they had never done it, but I am grateful for what God has made of what that experience did to me, what God has done in me because of what that experience did to me. And I think, I think there's some of that, in this text as well. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a really dense, beautiful, like beautifully troubling text. And in everybody who's reading it, I mean, you should study it's, it's echoing the sermon on the Mount, right? I mean, notice he ends with, we are, I don't, this isn't going to be a direct quote, but it's, we're poor and yet we make many rich and we have nothing and yet possess everything which of course is blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Hmm. Right, so Paul is coming to that same place. The Beatitudes tell us is the mark of a life that's in the hands of God. That's, that's moving in rhythm with the spirit. And it's out of, out of that nothing out of that poverty that we, we can make others rich. Right? And I, that again, Lent is not so much about us 
you know, acknowledging our brokenness or, and it's certainly, it's got nothing to do with feeling bad about the fact that we're broken. Right. I mean, Lent just has nothing to do with that repentance, grief, sorrow, penitence. These things are not about self-hate. They're not about shame. They're, they're about attending to the truth of our condition and to the wonder of God's work in us in, in that condition. Would you say that Lent over the years teaches us to have a healthy self-awareness? Yeah. 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 There's no, there's no God awareness without self-awareness. I mean, those two things are inseparably related, inseparably related. And we, we will, we'll always misunderstand. And this has to do with fear. Fear causes me to project onto you and onto, and onto God, what I fear to be true. It, it makes me project. And, and therefore I misread grace as judgment. I misread mercy as wrath. I misread patience as indifference and, and so on. Down well, you just, you just did Joel for us, the Joel text. Just yeah, now. Let's talk about that for a moment. By saying that. So the, the second half of the Joel text says, Yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. And I love this. Who knows? whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord, your God. And again, I think that is what you're, what you have been saying is the surprising reality of turn back to him because he's gracious and merciful. It's not what you think. And I just, I want to say like to people who are skeptical of Lent, like, Try it out because it's not what you think. There's there's grain and wine. There's there's bread and there's cup for you all Lent long. It's That's not right. it's yeah. not what you think it is. Just recognize that Lent is just a name for the wisdom the people of God who've gone before us have learned from our good God. Yeah, it's a way of holding of storing, not selfishly but graciously, so that it can be shared. The wisdom of God, right? And and. This, this text, I mean, I thought we'd come to it later, but let, let's just jump to it now. Notice again the passage you just read. Return to the Lord. He is gracious and merciful, slow in anger. And of course, that's calling back the revelation to Moses. It's calling back the, the truth that Jonah knows, which is why he runs in the first place, this, that God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, this, this hesed that marks God's relationship to Israel. He relents from punishing but notice, notice what's described. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent? So first of all, it's framed as a question, right? Which is, which is right out of, again, the Jonah story and of the Psalms as well. The sense of perhaps God will be merciful. Knowing full well, of course he will. It's framed as a question to draw that affirmation out of us. Because yes, of course he's going to turn and relent, but he doesn't simply relent. And this, this is, I think, where our accounts of God often, often go wrong. We either think of God as punishing or relenting from punishing. But this text is not concerned with punishing and relenting punishment. 
It's he will leave a blessing in the turning. And notice what the blessing is for. For you then to be able to make an offering to the Lord your God. So he's giving you in his turning what you need to return to him. He's he's affecting your praise for you. And, and so this, in one way, is this is an inner Trinitarian moment, right? In which the Father is through the Spirit giving us the Son, and the Son through the Spirit giving us the Father, and we're caught in in that perichoretic embrace, right? That movement of God with God. But it's also a way of saying that, in the in in the language of Saint Augustine, right? Whatever God commands, in that command, He gives us the obedience. When He says to Peter, "Come to Me." That is what stabilizes the water and opens the way for Peter to come to him, right? And this is a God who do, who never, he, he's not a tyrant. He, he doesn't upbraid us. He gives us what we need, always what we need. And, and he leaves in his wake everything we need to come to him in confidence, to come to, come to him in boldness, right? In the language of Hebrews, he opens this way. God opens the way to God so that we can come before God as God does, right? In that same boldness, the same boldness the Son has to the Father. And again, the liturgy holds this for us. Every Sunday when we say the Lord's Prayer, what's the liturgical lead in? And now let us be, we are bold to say, as our Savior taught us, we are bold to pray. We are bold to pray because we have his boldness emboldening us, right? It is, it's carrying us up, right? And I I think this, recognition that Lent is what God is asking of us is something that God has already left in us by his turning. And why does it say to come with weeping and mourning and then to the priests in verse 17, which is the last verse of the lectionary, let the priests and the ministers of the Lord weep and say, spare your people Make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? So I'm, I'm obviously totally agree with what you're saying, but why, why the language of weeping and mourning and rending our hearts and asking God to spare us? Like, where, where's, why, is, why the command for that? I, I think there, there are a couple of things going on, but essentially the first and most important thing is that the, the sorrowing is making room. It, it's creating space to receive. It's it's attuning us to what it is that we are receiving. So that the gift of tears is the gift of cleansing our perception, making it so that we can see clearly what God is actually doing. So that in, in sorrowing, in rending our hearts and not our garments, what we're doing is we're opening ourselves up. I mean, think about this. And I think everybody knows this, right? There's a there's a kind of heartbreak that everybody, I, I'm sure everybody who's listening to this has experienced, that leads to despair. But there's a kind of sorrowing that's purifying. There have been moments, and I'm sure every one of us have at least a story of times in our lives, where at times in our life, where we have, our hearts have been broken in a way that was clarifying, cleansing. And we wept those tears, not of despair, deep sorrow, painful sorrow, but 
it was cleansing. And we, we get to the bottom of it. Things come clear. We recognize, okay, this is real. And there's Paul talks about it this way. There's worldly sorrow, which makes things obscure and darkens your awareness. But godly sorrow, he says, leads to repentance because it brings clarity. Mm. It makes you aware this is true. This is real. And what Joel is calling for, what all the prophets call for, what Jesus embodies and then calls for us to, to, to body forth is that kind of that kind of weeping. Make make room for the truth to settle into you. Get clear before God. And the priests do that for the sake of the people. Like do it between the porch and the altar, because this is, a, is as much about those people, those who are outside, who are going to have to come up the porch as it is about those like you who are serving at the table. Like the, we have to lead the way there. Godly sorrow works that kind of awareness. And that's the key, I think. Does that help? Does that start to? Yes. As always, I love the way you phrase that. And I think you, you said it earlier that God's concerned, God's concern over our sin isn't the anger over you not doing what I wanted you to do. It's the concern he has over what our sin does to us and neighbor. And so we can, we, so this weeping and mourning as we come before God, isn't the weeping and the mourning of people who are trying to appease an angry King. And if I weep enough and mourn enough, he'll it's joining Jesus in what he's actually concerned about regarding our sin, what it's done to us and what it's done to our neighbor. Yeah. So when we can weep from that place where it's not, it's, we're not trying to appease him. We're actually joining him. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. In his priestly weeping over Jerusalem say. That's right. I mean, that's exactly right. And, and over Lazarus. I think the, if we connect this back to the Corinthians, second Corinthians text for just a moment, you know, there's this line, which Paul says, we do not put an obstacle in anyone's way. And, Second Corinthians talks, I mean, Second Corinthians is a letter. It's, it's actually not the second letter. There's a letter that has come between, at least one letter that's come between what we know as First Corinthians and what we know as Second Corinthians that Paul refers to as the tearful letter. Hmm. And it's that letter that he's talking about when he talks about the, the reason that he, he's pained to hear how he has caused pain for them, but he doesn't regret it because it worked godly sorrow and godly sorrow brings repentance and repentance leads to life. And I, I think recognizing that there is good grief, there is a kind of grief, a godly sorrow that makes us aware, that brings us in touch with reality. And that's what makes it so that there's no obstacle in God's way into our life and no obstacle in God's way into other people's lives or in other people's lives in their movement toward God. So like our priestly function, whatever our vocation happens to be, our priestly function is to clear away the obstacles by good grief, by learning to sorrow. I mean, we've talked about this before. Suffering happens to us, but sorrowing is a gift. Grieving is a work of grace. And the spirit 
intercedes for us and teaches us to grieve and to sorrow, to take suffering to heart. And doing that clears the way. It opens the way of God, for God to come to us and us to go to God, and it opens the way for our neighbors. And, and that's why the, the, the priestly calling above all is that intercessory prayer. Mm. And if, if you have, you know, so in Isaiah text, you get, well, and Joel too, you get the announcement of wrong or the call to repentance. But the only way that that's going to work, like if you, if, if you think of it this way, there's the prophetic announcement, you have sinned. You must come to God. Well, we have to clear the way for people to get there. And that's not cleared in a prophetic way. That's cleared in a priestly way. And it's cleared by grieving as Jesus grieved over Jerusalem. And then he made the way. He carried his cross right through that city. So we should Man. probably start to, to, to wrap up. Go ahead and respond to that, Bill. And then we'll, we'll, one was, more set of reflections. I was just saying... You pastor pastors, man, and that that is very, very helpful. What you just said is to to whether you're a priest in a church or a parent in a home or just a leader among your friends, it's to 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 embody how to face our sin the right way and seeing how that creates space for other people to join is very, very, very sound what you just said and, and very, very helpful. That's very clarifying. Thank you. I think, yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's freeing, right? It, Cause it, it tells us how, how to be. And in, in the, what's striking, right. About the sins God is concerned with. And of course this is explicit in Isaiah text, but it's already there at work in the gospel and in the reading in Joel that it's, the things that we feel guilty for, the things we've been told are sinful, tend to be things that moralism is concerned with. Right. And what, another reason we need priestly intercession is so that we can come aware of, you know, there's that line, this, I don't even remember which song it is. It's a very popular song. We hear it all the time, and this turn of phrase shows up all the time. You know, God... Break my heart with what breaks yours. Well, that's what good grief does. It makes us aware that this is why Jesus is weeping. That Jesus is not weeping over the things the moralists are concerned about. He's involved in a lot of that stuff. But he's not he's not grieving over it. You know, and I I I don't think it was us where I was having this conversation that moralism is not only not the cure moralism is the disease mm. it's the disease and only the holiness of god can cure morality huh. and it's you know it's the rich young ruler who's the diseased one far more diseased than the woman caught in the act of adultery her the immorality is the fever not the disease. Now, fever can kill you. I mean, fever is dangerous. But immorality, the things we do in our lives that we should not be doing, the, the bad things, are expressions of the 
real sin in our lives of trying to control things that are not ours, ours to control. Those things are, are, are the fever that's telling us there is a sickness raging in us. And the sickness is the sickness of bad religiosity and moralism. It's the sickness of arrogance and presumption. It's the sickness of power drunkenness. It's the sickness of concern with the things of life and disregard for our neighbor. Like all, all of those, the sickness is moralistic and and religious in the negative sense and only the holiness of god can cure that and the way that it cures it is by giving us the gifts we need to repent so jesus weeps so that we can weep and the spirit groans so that we can groan and this you know joel tells us the priest must weep between the porch and the altar i mean the high priest that's where he is father kenneth tanner just shared this story. You probably saw it. He shared this story this week or last on Instagram about his, his dad and everyone should go and read it in which he said his dad had had this vision while he was in Rome and he had been in a time of prayer and he, he saw Jesus and Jesus was kneeling and weeping and praying. And, and he said, you know, what, what are you doing? And he says, oh, this is where I always am. <laughs> right. That, that the high priest weeps between the porch and the altar, right? He's interceding for us and interceding in order to make room, to make a way, to clear this, to clear the space. So let's, let's end with this. How do we hear tomorrow? When, and, and I'm sure some people will be listening to this, not on Ash Wednesday, but in the days that follow it. How, how not just Lent in general, but specifically that awareness of death, dust you are to dust you return. How do we hear that as promise? Not as threat, but as promise. I mean, in a lot of ways, we're going the way Jesus went. Absolutely. Like, like you've said time and time again, God didn't keep Jesus from dying. He delivered him from death. And as you said, Bill, a moment ago, we make the sign of the cross with the ash, right? The ash takes the form of Jesus. There's a lot less pressure when you admit the scary reality. And I think this is what I'm going to talk about tomorrow. Ash Wednesday is the day that settles you. It gives you a, a, it gives you Sabbath because Ash Wednesday says you can't live in such a way where you can avoid this. Mm-hmm. You know, you, wow, my house gets messy every time we clean it. My job, I'm always behind like th- this, this unspoken notion that one day we will hit that moment where we're like, I am ahead and I'm going to stay ahead forever. And I made it. And now I'm going to live out the rest of my days in this euphoria of whatever that end game was. It's, it's elusive. It's not real. It's delusional. And I think Ash Wednesday says the promise is that you can live your life. It's going to end and it's going to end in my ending. Hmm. I mean, just the last thing I'll say is, you know, that the gospel text ends with don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. And then a few chapters later, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a man yeah. who found a treasure hidden in the field and sold all that he had and bought the field. And I thought to myself, wow, 
when I read that text, I say, all I do is lay up for myself treasures on earth. Like that's, that's all I do. And that one, you know, Matthew 13, 44, when Jesus says that parable, he says, I see all of your false treasures buried in the earth. And I know your heart is in there. And because your heart is in there, I value that treasure chest. And I'm going to sell all that I have to get it. Like that's the promise of Ash Wednesday. You're going to eat. Your time will come. But I'm turning that ending into a cross. Because it's going to end in my ending, which is a new beginning. Yeah, it can't end anywhere else. Because he is the end. He is the end. There isn't any other ending. And I think it takes the pressure off we don't have to live in competition with trying to avoid that ending. What does John Bear say? Uh, either of you guys, what, what's what does John Bear say about the martyr being the glory of God? Like just like living to die well as the freedom of what it means to be human. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean that's the way in which we're born into life. That, that's Bear's point, which he which he argues is is right there in the Gospels and in in Irenaeus and. Ignatius and others, like in the in the early tradition. Rory, what's your last word? Oh, I just think that this idea of limits, that we have them, and we are going to be brought to our limits, and that because of the God we see that's revealed in Jesus, that is not bad news. Mm. Yeah, when when you have to do with Jesus, right? Even even the bad news opens out on on good news. But he he just keeps he keeps turning so that we can return, right? He, he keeps mm-hmm. leaving in his wake the gifts we need to come to him with thanksgiving and 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 find the truth of ourselves. So I, I'm. I'm going to read just a bit as we close from The Life in Christ, which is this kind of classic text by Nicholas Cabasalas. Uh, I, I, I encourage everyone to read it if you've not read it. It's it's a it's a work, mystical sacramentalism. I mean, it's for some for some of you it'll it'll be a strange a strange read, but definitely worth your time to live with it to live with it prayerfully to read it slowly. the 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 sixth book. There are seven books in the one book. It's divided into seven sections. The The sixth is devoted to the Beatitudes. So I, that's actually a great place to start the read. But I want to I just point to this, and now I think I've lost my place, what he has to say about the love of God and, and good grief. And now, again, I shut the book. I don't remember where it is. All right, here, here we go. I found it. This is this is from the sixth book, the, the seventh section of the sixth book. Thus, the grief that is full of graces derives from love of Christ, and love depends on the thoughts which concern Christ and his loving kindness. Accordingly, it is profitable to hold these things fast in our memory and turn them over in the mind, And at no time turn away from this occupation, but to be of set purpose, to meditate and to reflect upon them when we are alone and to make them the delight of our speech and the matter of conversation when we are with others. Besides, as far as is possible, 
we should display this preoccupation without ceasing, or at least frequently, throughout our lives, so that it may be deeply imprinted on our hearts, and we come to completely possess them. Even fire, when it touches anything, can have no effect unless the contact continues. Hmm. Neither will occasional reflection dispose the heart to any affection. There is need of abundant and continuous time for this. What he's talking about is the ways in which your heart starts to break when you meditate on Jesus long enough. And, and there's a line in the Corinthians passage. We do not want you to receive the grace of God in vain. And I think that the, one of the threads that runs through this whole hour and a half conversation we, we've had tonight is many of us come from traditions that do not know how to hold our attention for a long time. We don't have liturgical practices. We don't have patterns. We don't have what is necessary to hold our attention on Jesus, on his story, on what he suffered, on what the saints have suffered for him. And the good grief that we've been discussing recently, it doesn't come until you've stayed close to the fire long enough for it to affect you. And so I I would encourage everybody, the most important thing you can do during Lent is give your attention to Jesus. Specifically, the Jesus of the Gospels, the Jesus of these texts you're going to hear on Ash Wednesday, these the texts like the Sermon on the Mount, the stories you're going to hear in the readings from Scripture, the sermons on Sunday, just attend to the mystery of what Jesus has done, who he is, until your heart turns. And and with that good grief, we'll, we'll, the ways will be opened up. So I... I I don't know entirely why, but I, I think I think that's some of what we're supposed to learn from what's happening at Asbury is that there's a there's a prolonged being present to God that is opening up the heart. And again, we we've got to stop, but I mean when I was a young you know, I was a kid. I mean, my kid, my parents were taking me to church. I mean, we went to church four times a week. We went to church four times a week for hours at a time. And in my lifetime, I mean, I'm 46. In my lifetime, I think many of us have gone from living in communities, attending a church that was right at the heart of what our life was, to church being one hour a week. And we, we are people who need, I mean, human beings are people who need to stay closer to the fire than that. And I think attending to liturgies, including the liturgy of the year, including the season of Lent is a way of staying close to the fire, the the fire of the story of the gospel. I'm going to give you guys the last word, at least say a prayer for us, Father Bill. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Father God, thank you for 
the church fathers and church mothers who have gone before us and have written these things down for our instruction and that we can participate in them. We just pray that everything we do this Lenten season would, in all of our frail attempts to do this, that it would end with us being made more able to love our neighbor as ourself and to love ourselves as you love us. We just ask that you would lead us and guide us this Lenten season by still waters and green pastures, nudge us when we start to move to those extremes and bring us to the place where we can love our neighbor and love ourselves with the love you gift us to love with. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys.